welcome to Talking, um, uh, Jimmy Stewart. I'm Tim Vandenberg, and this episode is a real treat. A rare interview with actress Kim Novak, whose numerous recognitions include two Golden Globes and a Photoplay Award for the most popular female star in 1956. I spoke with Kim by phone, and we talked about her painting, retired life in Oregon, and her experiences with Jimmy Stewart on Vertigo, Bell Book and Candle, and behind the scenes at a special reunion with Mr. Stewart in the 1980s. You need to hear about that one. So let's get to it. I hope you'll enjoy it. So tell me what's there. What all do you have? It? Is, there, is, I mean, is there a physical museum with lots of uh, things that uh, were his? That's right. Uh, actually, they even have the desk that he used uh, just to, as his office. They've recreated that. They have his childhood bedroom recreated. Oh. Um, it's, oh, it's, wow. it's amazing. It's across the street from where his father's hardware store, his grandfather, too. Oh. Uh, it's where that stood. It's in, the, it's in a public building on the second floor. The whole second and third floor, I believe, are devoted to the museum. The third floor is office space that uh, Mr. Harley, you may have corresponded with him at one time or another. He's currently the president. He's also the director, the man who's there day in and day out. He has organized it in the last few years where it tells the timeline of the Stewart family. Um, there are posters that represent every film. Uh, there's a booth from the Chasen's restaurant where he and Gloria sat at regularly. It's just uh, you know, a nice time capsule. Oh, great. Oh, that's so nice that, that there is such a place. And do they have do they have many people that go there to visit every year? They have quite a bit. Like I said, it had dropped down a few years ago, and then I think it's slowly risen back up. I think a lot of people just didn't know about it, or you know, it's been there tw- yeah. twenty one years now. It uh, it opened wow. just a couple years before he passed away, and he wanted to keep it modest and uh, simple. He, you know, yeah. true to his character, he didn't want to draw a lot of attention. But uh, he thought if it's character was. And he thought if it was good for the community, then he could support that. And and what people don't know is how much he gave to the community just behind the scenes over the years. And I think they found that out after he passed away. He was very modest, uh, didn't want to call attention to himself. Oh, that's nice. That's great. So I want to get a a sense of the time you have available. I don't want to monopolize your day. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know, probably about 20, 30 minutes, I guess. Yeah, I think that's that's about what I was thinking, hopefully like 30 minutes or so. All right. Okay, so. All right. All right, have that. Okay, very good. All right, so first okay. of all, I've visited your website, and your art is beautiful. How much? Oh, thank you. I'm glad you checked it out. Yeah, how much time per day do you spend painting and sculpting? Oh, gosh. Well, as a matter of fact, um, I'm, I was a few minutes late calling you because I I was at a place in my painting that I was doing uh, and I didn't yeah. want to stop. <laughs> uh, I, I probably spend, well, you know, it's not every day, uh, but it, but most of the time. I, I probably spend, when I'm really in the middle of something, I might spend, uh, I might spend 18 hours a day uh, at times, you know. Uh, but then other times I might not because I'm out with the horses riding. And um, so it, it kind of varies. But when I'm in the middle of something, I, I, I'm, 
I'm compulsive about it, and my husband has to say, you got to get to bed, come on, you know. So uh, I'm, I, I'm still in my pajamas because I've been, I've been painting. I got out of bed, I'm still barefooted, and I, I, I got out of bed and went straight at it. My dogs had to tell me I had to stop and feed them. And so, uh, it, it, you know, I, I'm sort of in the midst of being really excited about a new painting, and so oh, I, um, I, I'm really hot at it. Well, you've touched on some of the things I wanted to ask you just about how you start your morning. Sounds like you might step out and, and start painting. Do you hear the sound of Canadian geese flying over? Do you do you oh, wake I to that did. sound? Fact, well, I don't know if you checked my Facebook, but I just put, posted a picture of uh, a Canadian goose because we have goose boxes out on our island all across from the house and everything. And um, so one of the geese, geese across the way uh, just had her, had her babies and she took them out and showed them off to us because they're not afraid of us because they know that we put up, we, we always fill their nest boxes with fresh uh, straw. And so they're very happy with us and, and they couldn't wait to show up oh, their babies. I did check your so, site and I, I used to live near a lake and would hear geese. I don't know if there's a better sound in nature than that. Do you have anything? Oh, that, isn't it wonderful? It I is. I just a, love the sound of it. Just love it. And so... Um, yeah, I, I just was so pleased to see them so proudly showing off their little babies. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So fans and will know. We have another, another one that's just down outside my office window here that hasn't had her babies yet. She's still in her nest, but she should have them any day now. That's amazing. So most fans will know your husband, Robert, is a veterinarian. I'm guessing a large yeah. part of your day is spent as a veterinarian's assistant. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, now we don't have as many um, breeding animals, but um, I used to help him always when we were birthing llamas and horses, and that was always so much fun. <clears throat> How many live animal births do you think you've seen in your lifetime? I've assisted on. Yeah, many times when he wasn't home, I, I'd have to do a, help with a breech birth and help go in there and turn a baby around. That was always... Uh, nerve, nerve wrenching to, yeah. to, uh, to try to to do that um, and have it be successful. Cause it's not easy to push them back in and get them turned around. But I'd always get him, Bob, on the phone and say, "Help, help!" Oh, wow. No one was, won't talk me through it, you know. But it was uh, a most enjoyable. In fact, I, you know, it was when I was a child, I I always wanted to grow up and be a veterinarian. But of course, it was much too hard to. To, uh, to do all of that, but um, uh, technically and to learn all to be a veterinarian. Yeah. But, uh, but I used to love to uh, go out and help little birds and get them steamed over a teapot and help them get well. I used to put a sign in the window, bring ill animals here, <laughs> mostly birds and things like that, and try to help them get well. So that was always something I wanted to do. So goats or llamas, what do you prefer? Goat, like goats, I loved goats. <laughs> well, goats, have, goats have that spunky uh, spunky thing about them, and I, I've always loved goats. Okay, yeah. well, art has always been a part of your life. I understand you won two scholarships to the Chicago Art Institute, but you, yes, you, you took a different turn after traveling to Hollywood on summer vacation. Uh, as they say, yeah. one thing leads to another, and you became a top box office star. 
Now, I may have left out a little bit in that story, but how did how did your family? Depends on your research, I like that. I like that. <laughs> too, too many. Too many interviewers don't do their research, and you've got to you've got to fill them in on all the details. Oh well, your your story is rich and worth exploring <laughs> for sure. How I want to know how did your family and friends react to your quick rise in Hollywood? I mean, it came suddenly. Well, it, it did happen suddenly, but unfortunately, my father was not a fan of the movie world, and so he was not too happy about it all. That he, he he looked down on the movie business, so he was not too excited. Yeah, I wonder, uh, Jimmy Stewart's father felt the same way. I wondered if you had ever oh, discussed really? that. I yes. Didn't know that. Yeah, he, he was not. Well, Jimmy had studied to be an architect, and yeah, I don't, I don't think his dad appreciated the, the career choice at all, and never really did, from oh. what I understand. Yeah, right. Well, that's the same as my father. I didn't know that Jimmy and I never talked about that. Interesting. I would have liked to, like to, have uh, have talked about that with him and shared share that in common. I think he yeah. he may have buried that a little bit. It it did bother him. Uh, his daughter Judy went into pretty good detail about it and felt like it sort of factored into some depression over the years for him. But you mm. know he he still went after it. So I, I don't want you to have to recap your whole story, but it'd be interesting to hear about some of the actors and directors you worked with. Uh, so I'd like to mention some names and get your memories of a few people. Uh, Jack, okay. Jack Lemon, you worked with him on several occasions. Yes, well, we were both under contract at Columbia, and so it was nice because we both uh, shared in common um, uh, sort of starting out as uh, young actors together, more or less. Uh, of course, he had a Broadway um, background, and so. Um, but it was nice because, uh, as I say, we were both contract players at Columbia. Right. All right. What about uh, Frank Sinatra? And was he approachable? Did you get a sense of anything that? Oh yes. Well, he was very helpful to me uh, because he he sort of took me under his wing mm-hmm. and um, and and helped me. Um, uh, I was having problems at the time with Harry Cohn, and he helped me uh, get a new agent when I was starting out, and um, and helped me realize that I was being underpaid at a hundred and fifty dollars a week. <laughs> right. Uh, and so he he helped me um, get a new agent and get a new contract. So he was very helpful. And also, um, when I w- I got sick when I was working at uh, there had a cold, and he was so thoughtful. He sent me a a whole box of books of um, of um, Thomas Wolfe, and I remember he became my favorite author. And I loved You Can't Go Home Again. It was my favorite book, and it was so thoughtful of him. I mean, he was really kind and understanding, and uh, I really. Really appreciated working with him on that first movie, especially *Man with the Golden Arm*. Right. Yeah, he he really uh, really was tender and understanding. Yeah, I really appreciated that. that that's wonderful. So the director Otto Preminger on that film. Uh, oh, he was the best. I again, um, he uh, I was so fortunate to work with work with him. He was particularly. I mean, a lot of people say he was such a, a difficult director. But uh, I found him to be really understanding. He really appreciated anybody who took their work seriously and was on time. That mattered to him a lot. People that were 
on time to work. If you if you knew your lines and were on time, he respected you. He really got after people who were unprepared. Mm. Um, but if you, if, I mean, if he would he would never lose his temper at somebody that tried. And I tried. God knows. I mean, it, you know, he didn't care if you if you uh, you know if you as long as you tried. And I certainly did. I really cared, and he really respected that. We became really good friends. And I, he was he was probably one of my very favorite directors of all times, besides Richard Quine. But of course, I fell in love with him, and so that hmm. that was another story. But right. uh, yeah, Otto Preminger was my favorite, one of my very favorite directors. Oh, okay, very good. How was his style different than Alfred Hitchcock? Well, he, it was di- very different, really. Well, it, not in some ways it wasn't because he he was also very exacting. Um, and, but I liked that. I was I was used to. I had a father who was also very exacting mm. and demanding, um, and so I was used to that. As, I was used to that kind of um, person in my life, and so I, I didn't I didn't mind I didn't I minded it. But on the other hand, I was used to it, mm. and so I I that I, I was used to that kind of. A person domi- being domineering, dominant and domina- dominating. Domineering, in my life. dominating, yes. Domineering and dominating in my life, <laughs> just like Harry Cohn. Harry Cohn was too, uh, yes. and so I that I, I kind of accepted, and so actually I I feel like um, both Hitchcock and Out of Premature, but Out of Premature became a real friend of mine. Now Hitchcock, I mean, you, I couldn't, I never got close to. I never thought was a friend in my life, but on the other hand, I really respected him as a director because he allowed you your he allowed you to develop your character as you wanted to. He was really um, uh, he really was insistent upon how you where you stood and how you um, how you um, all the technical parts, but he never messed with your mind. He allowed you the freedom of your own your interpretation, and that was the most important part to me. I don't. I, I always wanted the freedom of choice in my mind of how I played the role, but he, and so he never messed with that. In fact, I I really almost wanted more direction in that sense. And I remember talking to Jimmy Stewart about that, and always saying, "But he never talks to you about how he wants you to play a role." And he says, "But that's why he hired you, because he he accepts you as how you're going to play the role." And he said, "So don't mind that. And he he expects you to play it as you want to." But on the other hand, he was very exacting as far as where to stand, and and even the timing of how you say your lines. But that always was fine with me because he, um, that that was okay, you know. I mean, at first it was hard to adjust. I mean, like for instance, when he would say what he wanted you to wear, you know, I mm-hmm. I minded some of that. On the other hand, he had the right to that, you know, to to the discretion to what to wear and all of that. And so I accepted that. I had to adjust to that part. But on the other hand, he never told me how to play the role. So. That that was really great, and I always found that to be true with all great directors. They they did not mess with how you your interpretation. 
or at least they would always discuss that with you mm-hmm. and allow you the freedom of your interpretation where um, um, a bad director would always tell you how to interpret it and never discuss that with you. I mean, it was interesting to me when you look back on on a good director uh, and a bad director. Right. And same thing with a writer. You know, I mean, a writer, I mean, uh, well, of course, a writer, good lines are so easy to say because they were real, they were natural. So, so made all the difference. So while you were filming, yeah. did you get the sense that you were creating something special with the movie Vertigo? Well, you know, none of us knew, of course, how it would turn out. You know, um, I really liked it because I loved the idea of playing two different roles. Because yes. I, I, I suppose probably because of my own mental illness, I, I, I always felt uh, almost like two different people. When I, I would be upset, I would be such a different person than when I was feeling good. When I would be depressed, you know, I, I, my moods would take over as opposed to when I was feeling good and happy. I was like two different people. Hmm. And so I, I identified very much with playing two different characters. I loved, I loved playing two different characters. So to me, I, I, I really loved playing those two characters. I, I adored the opportunity of doing that. Um, so it was special to me to play that, um, play in that movie. But none of us had the idea that it was going to be a, 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 a such an incredibly successful movie. I only wish, that's the only thing that's upsetting to me, I only wish that Jimmy had been around long enough to know how successful that movie was going to be. Right. That would have been such an incredible, incredible thing. I think your acting in that film is so convincing. You could almost think that Judy was being played by another actress. Uh, how did you go about creating these two roles? What did you draw from? Uh, you mentioned, you know, having a bit of a split personality. Was that your influence? Well, not so much a split personality as much as, I guess, just, um, well, well, yes, I mean, in a way, but partly because of my, me, and and me as a Hollywood person. I mean, uh, as such a difference in in um, in who I became as a, as someone in Hollywood, as a, being a movie star, and then who I was growing up in uh, in Chicago. You know, mm-hmm. uh, two different two different worlds, really. You know, just like oh, in a way, Jimmy Stewart. Although not so much for Jimmy Stewart, because Jimmy Stewart, I don't think ever ever changed really. I mean, Jimmy Stewart was Jimmy Stewart always. I feel I was always two different people in a way. Even in even growing up, really. Um, I mean, uh, I, I I always felt kind of like two different people in a way. Uh, I mean, I, I think. When I'm upset, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a different person than I am when I'm, when I'm happy. I'm, my moods, I, my moods, I have mood swings. I, I just, I, when I get depressed, I, I get very depressed, you know? I mean, but I don't get that way so much now because I, I have medications for my, for my, um, my bipolar. But I didn't know I was bipolar when I was in, when I was in movies. Mm. And so I, I had a lot of, I had a hard time really with, 
when I was working and I didn't know that I was depressed. I didn't understand when I would be depressed. Right. Well, I want to understand a little bit better about how Alfred Hitchcock worked. So you'd mentioned that he had, you'd seen nothing like it. He had everything mapped out and you even worked to a metronome uh, during the tower scene. Yes. Yes, that's right. So see, he had uh, cardboard maps of everything that he had in mind for the day? Yes. Yes, he did. Well, he planned everything ahead, even all of his music. I mean, you know, when when uh, the score was written, he, uh, Alfred Hitchcock knew already, really, how he wanted the music, He wanted how he wanted the rhythm, the beat. I mean, he, he did the music as much as... Uh, as uh, Gosh, I suddenly I can't remember who did the music. Oh, uh, yes, uh, Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann, yes. yes, of course. But, I mean, in other words, he, he, he knew exactly what he wanted from everybody. Uh, and I don't mean that in, in, in the interpretation. Again, as I told you, he allowed everybody to have their own interpretation. But he knew the rhythm he wanted. Do you know what I mean? He, he knew what he wanted um, from the point of view of the... Of the but he knew what he wanted. He knew yeah. what he expected. And so he, he as I say, he had, the, had a metronome. And I'm sure that he did that even with Bernard Herrmann, you know, as far as letting him know where he wanted it to build and where he wanted it to, to come to a, to a fevered pitch. Yes. With it musically as well as everything. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. So I understand yeah. that uh, Jimmy's wife, Gloria, was on the set a lot. Uh, oh yeah. If you're if you're playing a romantic scene, is that more challenging to have the actor's wife there on hand? Well, I, well, I mean, I, I don't think she was there when we did that. Oh, okay. No, I don't think she was there then. I I think I think that wives and 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 lovers know enough to stay away on on when when they do those scenes because they're <laughs> they're those are challenging scenes to do and and they are they require an intimacy that yeah so w- once vertigo was released the reception was disappointing um yes. why why do you suppose it went so unappreciated at the time i think it was ahead of its time i don't think people understood it they just they were expecting a film of the time you know they were expecting they were expecting something that they were used to hmm. they were used to what they were used to, and they, they were they just weren't ready to reach out for something different and and be a part of of it. And it's a shame, you know, that they they that they couldn't do that. Yeah, well, it must be as as you mentioned, uh, you know, extremely gratifying to see people come around after all this time. Uh, yes, it it is, but it's a shame that people at the time weren't ready to to. Um, expand their minds a little <laughs> and the critics as well you know shame on them oh yeah <laughs> well uh, you look at how it's grown over time you have sight and sound naming it the number one movie uh, you right. have you know it was one of the first movies selected for preservation what well, I want to talk a little bit about the 1996 restoration by Richard Harris and James Katz. Uh, what was your well, they impression? Did a wonderful job, didn't they? Oh, they sure did. I think I think yeah. the only real criticism I've seen are just some nitpicks about the audio. 
uh, where they had to refoley some things. And it sounds like they, you know, still made those decisions very carefully. Uh, were there any any issues at all that you saw that you you felt like might should have been done differently? Oh no, I don't think so. Do you, I think they did a beautiful job. I do, I do too. I, you know, they rescued it from ruin for one. It's uh, oh yeah, it's amazing. Oh yeah. So uh, you you go from Vertigo that has a tragic ending, has a, a a beautiful ending as far as the life of the film and how it got appreciated. But the the story itself it's, is tragic. Then you go straight into another film with Jimmy Stewart that has a happy ending. Uh, Bell Book and Candle. How did the productions of those two movies different? Because they're they're so radically different. You know, one's one's a very personal project, very serious, and the other one is a straight up studio comedy. Right. Tell me about the productions right. of those two and how they differed from each other. Well, I mean, it, 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 they differed so much, but it was wonderful going from one to the other, and I loved going from. I loved it. I mean, it was such a um, uh, a joy to go from the vertigo into the other, as as opposed to reverse. It was it was just uh, a joy. I can't think of anything nicer than going from one movie to another with Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh my God, what a joy! Oh, what a lady. joy that was. I could have kept going and going on with another movie and another movie with Jimmy Stewart. In fact, I said, can't we do another? <laughs> it's interesting that he stopped being a leading man after his back-to-back films with you. I know. I asked him that. And he said, you know, I just don't feel like a leading man anymore. I, he said, I, I really... And I, in fact, I brought him a script that I... I would have liked to have done with him, but he he just didn't want to do it And after that. You have shared a tender memory from the set of Bell Book and Candle about sitting with Jimmy behind the scenes. I wondered if you could recap that a little bit. Oh, yeah. It was one of a real special moment that I remember in movies, probably the most tender moment I ever felt in making movies. Um, yeah, it was a time at the cut and um, we were just playing a scene and we were there with our shoes off and we just sat there they turned off the lights on the set and we just sat there barefoot and with our feet up on the table and all through the whole lunch hour and it was it was just one it was the most tender moment I can ever remember and of course, I always think of Jimmy Stewart. If when I think of him, it's like he's like uh, like uh, wearing the most fuzzy pair of morning slippers. And I always think of that because I think of probably the best Christmas present I ever received was from my parents uh, Christmas morning, getting a pair of fuzzy those fuzzy slippers that you put in, put on your feet. And they feel so warm and cozy, especially on a Christmas morning. And, and that's how I relate to thinking about Jimmy Stewart, like a fuzzy pair of morning slippers <laughs> that you put on a pair on your feet are cold and you just can crinkle up your toes in and feel so good. It's, he's, there's something about him that was just 
made you feel so warm and good all over. And anyway, I, and, I, and I suppose that way I felt that day, just sitting there with our feet up on the table, it, it just made you feel warm all over and, and good all over. It's just something, something about him was so warm and fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> that, that is amazing. Uh, I don't think there could be a higher compliment paid to a person. What a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, he was he was very special. I mean, he certainly wasn't the way you think of a Hollywood actor, you know. <laughs> he just was so special. So you were reunited with Mr. Stewart for the 1989 Oscars ceremony. Um, I can see your adoration of him just in that broadcast. What are your recollections from that evening? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, well... Yes, it was. It was very special, and he came to pick me up. And I, we, I was staying at the uh, Four Four Seasons Hotel, and I came out, and he was waiting out front, and he brought me a bouquet of flowers, and he was standing and leaning up against the street lamp, and he had his legs crossed at the ankle, and it, and he just reminded me so much of like a um, like a high school beau waiting to take a girl to a prom. He always seemed like a he always seemed like a young guy anyway, didn't he? Yes. Something about him. And he and he he just, you know, had that Jimmy Stewart look and <laughs> standing there leaning up against that street post and held out that bouquet of flowers to me. And this was before we were going, you know. And it was like, oh gosh, you know, um something so special. <laughs> what a that that yeah. is a classy move. <laughs> yeah, that was a very classy move. <laughs> a very Jimmy Stewart classy move. <laughs> yeah, so you, you arrived to the ceremony by limousine, is that right? Or do you remember how how you actually got to the award ceremony? Uh, well, then we hopped in a limo <laughs> that was waiting for us and and got there and uh, of course it was uh uh you know, it was uh, really, I felt like um, uh, uh, like we were going to the prom, and he did too. We felt like we were going to the prom, and then we got to there, and of course we were going to the going <laughs> to do something else. But we both felt like we were going to the prom. That, I'm so glad you shared that because I would have assumed that you both arrived there separately and you were sort of corralled, you know, backstage. No, because no, we were sitting in the back of the limo, and we both felt like. As, as sometime you do go into the prom, you take a limo, and uh, and he brought me the flowers, and I had to leave them in the car, of course, in the limo, but we both had that moment together of going to the prom. Hmm. So before before we went to the awards, we went to the prom. What what would you say to Jimmy if he were here today? I would just say, well, of course, I'm, I mean, I'm going to see him when we get when I get to heaven, and I'm going to tell him all about the stuff he missed when the <laughs> movie. So uh, yeah. I, I'm going to get to see him then uh, uh, because, uh, I mean, I've got a lot to tell, a lot of catch-up to do with him. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that, for sure. That is great. So I've got to tell him, got to tell him all about what happened since he took off early. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. He took off early, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, uh, this is this is wonderful. Well, good. Well, I enjoyed it too.
Thank you to Kim Novak, who was so gracious with her time and in sharing from her personal life. If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. It would also help us if you'd leave a review. We also hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and fellow Jimmy Stewart fans to help us keep the memory and legacy of a great man alive. See you soon.